The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Those of you who haven't been with us, as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we're just going through the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as told by Luke, associate of the Apostle Paul as he was led by the Spirit of God to write it all down, starting with basically the announcement of the birth of Christ, and then the birth of Christ, and then the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus Christ, culminating with his death and resurrection. He came to die and save sinners and rise from the dead, and also his ascension, and that's how Luke's gospel concludes. We are in chapter 12. We're about midway through the gospel of Luke, but we're at the actual end of Jesus' ministry. As we're looking at Luke chapter 12, the context is he's got about six months to go, He finished his two-and-a-half-year ministry in Galilee, where he grew up, and now he's headed to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified in fulfillment of Scripture. That's the big picture. That's where we are. Uh, We are looking at verses 35 to 48 today. That's one unit. We talked about it last week and the time before, and the overall theme is just simply be ready. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people called his, or just uh, disciples, among other people that are in the crowd. We've talked about that, Luke 12, verse 1 gives us the context. We don't know where he is. It's out in the open somewhere outside uh, of Jerusalem, probably. Somewhere, some grassy field, some mountainside. We don't know, but enough to accommodate, get this, tens of thousands of people. Imagine a football stadium or the Warriors arena packed to the house. And this is just spontaneous outside. No cushy chairs. That's the crowd that Jesus is speaking to in this entire... So all of chapter 12, spilling over into chapter 13, verse 9, that's one sermon that Jesus gave. And these are the highlights of it. We've walked through a a big chunk of it, and now we're going to finish verses 35 to 48. So Jesus has a captive audience. People are intrigued. Some love him and know him. That's actually very few people. He's got his enemies, as we said, sprinkled throughout the audience. Uh, Some people don't even know who he is. They've only heard about him. So you've got this mixed company of tens of thousands of people listening as Jesus preaches this sermon. And I said last week that if you take the whole thing together and try to summarize it, basically Jesus Christ is imparting to these people, to his listeners, a biblical worldview. That's an all-encompassing way of understanding all of reality from God's point of view, which means from the biblical point of view, from Scripture. What does God think? This is what God thinks. This is what God thinks, and we don't know what God thinks outside of this because he hasn't revealed it. So Jesus' sermon, he he touches on a lot of different topics, but he's got points of emphasis, and when you put them all together, this is a comprehensive, complete, biblical worldview of how Christians, us, should live and perceive and interpret reality. And we're actually in the minority in the world. If you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus. You spend your whole life trying to interpret reality trying to interpret life, and you get it wrong because you are not accepting God's interpretation through Scripture. So this, this is rich, um, this sermon. And there, another overriding theme, and we haven't even talked about it throughout it, if you put it all together, there are a couple of key verses where that ties this all together in terms of one of many themes that Jesus has, and one of those is urgency. We, I haven't even mentioned that yet starting at verse 1 all the way to the end, chapter 13. A sense of urgency. So we're going to see that. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, 
Well, first of all, let me read this. Live, this is urgency. Live with a sense of urgency, not panic. So I want to distinguish between those two of what urgency is. Uh, urgency needs to be a, a part of the biblical worldview. A sense of urgency is God's stewards. A sense of urgency is God's stewards. That's how we need to live. That's word for word out of our biblical distinctives at our church. We have 20 distinctives at Creekside Bible Church. What are those? Those are guiding biblical principles that are going to guide our thinking and our living. Those are the parameters and the boundaries, and we will live within that context as because those truths flow out of Scripture. And one of those, the 20 distinctives of our church, and you members, I'm reminding you of this if it wasn't in the forefront of your brain, that we are committed at this church to, quote, have a sense of urgency as God's stewards. And the verse that I tacked on there was Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 that says, Therefore, be careful, Christian, how you walk or how you live your life. Why? Oh, not as unwise men, not as those who are not saved, but as wise people, believers, making the most of your time. There it is. Living with urgency and efficiency and diligence. Making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. They still are. Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, and that's just as true as it ever has been. The days are evil, aren't they? They are. We live in a fallen world. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5, 8. Hey, Christian, be on the lookout. Be gregarious. That's the Greek word. What does that mean? Be awake. Wake up. That's what it means. It's a command. Be on the lookout. Wake up. Be vigilant. And then Peter actually goes on to, to tell us why. Because, get this, the time is near. The time is near. Is near. So that's just basic to the Bible. As a Christian, you live your life a different way. You live with a life of urgency. Not panic, but urgency. With diligence. With a supernatural purpose. You live with urgency day to day. You care about the things of the world because you want to be a good steward. But really, you're living with a sense of urgency with an eye on heaven. And that's the one of the biggest differences between a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, and an someone who is not a Christian, and their worldview. They don't live with a sense of urgency with an eye on heaven as described in the Bible. And that's actually Jesus' theme here from 35 to 48. He's telling his followers or anybody who wants to follow him, even those who aren't saved, who he's given an invitation to follow them, follow me and your life will be characterized by living with a sense of urgency with an eye on heaven on things to come on the end of the age on fulfillment of prophecy the culmination of which is and the greatest event is the coming of the son of man which was introduced last week so that's the theme of our passage uh, we went over verses 35 to 40 so this is uh, the title of the sermon today is be ready be ready picking up from last week we said that's a command, it's an imperative, it is to be obeyed, it's from the mouth of Jesus who is king. If you claim to be one of his, then we must comply, we must obey. If you were here last Sunday, how'd you do this week? Did this even resonate at all in your brain or was it, um, were you meditating on it in your thoughts of how you lived your life and conducted your business and lived day to day as the events of life and the vicissitudes and the trials of life maybe came uh, knocking you down? Hopefully this great truth and command from Jesus Christ to be ready uh, was giving you a plumb line by which to hold on and have stability in your life. Be ready. Be ready for what? We said it last week. It's be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. 
be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. That's why I asked last week, how's your eschatology? Hopefully you have a better, more specific answer today if I asked you that than you did last Sunday. How's your eschatology? I, th- I thought about it. If somebody asked me, hey, Pastor Cliff, how's your eschatology? I'd have to say, well, I'm ready. I hope. Because I want to be obedient to Jesus. That doesn't mean I know everything. But he said to be ready, so we need to be ready. And here in this passage, he's, he's trying to help his disciples and anybody who wants to follow him how to be ready of the greatest priority in life. One of the reasons Jesus emphasizes here that you need to be ready at all times, really, for the coming of Christ or have a sense of urgency, you need to live your life with a sense of urgency and expectation and awareness because this life that you're living, it could terminate at any time. Every single one of us here, we are all vulnerable. Our life as we know it now could end at any given time. Moment, And Jesus has said that three different ways in this passage in Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 4, he said, your life could end with somebody killing you, murdering you. Well, who do we know that's going to happen to within a couple of years? Well, the 12 apostles that are in that audience. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Are you, are you vulnerable? That's, that's pretty heavy to think about. So there's a possibility that I, could be, that I could be murdered. I don't know if you know anybody who's been murdered personally. I do. And their families, they're left behind. It's, it's tragic. The consequences that you have to battle with and struggle through last the rest of your life. Murder. But I don't know if it, there, there's anything worse than that. But Jesus is a realist. Jesus speaks the truth. And you know what he says about murder? Murder is a possibility. Some of you here could face that. And Jesus is exhortation to believers is do not fear don't fear those who can kill the body don't feel don't fear murderers and we know that peter would be murdered paul would probably have his head chopped off by nero james the brother of john would be the first apostle to be slaughtered murdered for his faith we see that in acts chapter 12 about 10 years after jesus went back to heaven and he's telling them right now and it's not just them it's all of us Do not fear those who murder you. Rather, fear God. Fear God. Don't fear those who kill the body. Rather, fear him who can kill the soul. Wow. God kills people? That's what that verse said. So anyway, live a life of urgency because your life could end as you know it at any given moment. Live with a sense of urgency. You could die by getting killed, murdered. Well, where's that happening in the world today? All over. We're just not aware of it. We know it's happening in Ukraine right now. I've been there many times. I was teaching at a seminary there. I have many brothers and sisters in the Lord who are friends who used to be there. Over 6,000 civilians to date that we know of have been slaughtered and killed, many of whom are just children and women. That's just one example. I was alarmed in April when uh, the dean of the seminary, we were informed, the dean of the seminary of Kiev Theological Seminary was murdered in the war. They just found his body laying in a grave of 400 people. What did he do? What was his crime? Uh, it could have been that he was Ukrainian, but it also could have been that he was just a Christian. So live a life of urgency, Jesus says, and with the right perspective because you could get murdered. And then the second reason he said uh, live with urgency and your life could end any time because you could die today. That was verse 20 when he said, uh, he's telling that parable, and he says, you fool, thinking you're going to live forever? You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. 
And that means we could all die for any given reason for anything. We could have a heart attack just like that. You could get, uh, die in a car accident, which happens all the time. Which made me think, okay, Jesus, I want to be ready and I could die uh, unexpectedly any time for whatever reason. Over the, as the years go by, I got more and more friends of my, more of my friends getting killed in car accidents. It can happen. Somebody came and told me, you know what, you're going to die tonight. You're going to die tonight. You've got eight hours. What would you do? What would be your priorities be? Okay, what do I need to take care of? What's the most important thing? Boy, that really puts life in perspective, doesn't it? Live life with a sense of urgency. If you're not a Christian, priority number one is you knew that you were going to die tonight. You need to give your life to God and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's priority number one. So live a life of urgency with an eye on heaven because you could be murdered. You could die for any reason, even today. And then finally, you need to live a life of urgency. And that takes us to 35 to 43 because Jesus could come. The Son of Man could return at any time. The Son of Man could return imminently. It's undefined as far as when it can happen, but there's a lot of implications there. And that's why it says be ready. Be ready. So let's go ahead and look at uh, 35 through 48. Uh, I gave you three main points regarding being ready really for the end of the age or being ready for the coming of Christ, whether it's at the rapture, whether it's the second coming. He doesn't say. He doesn't give the details. We're not responsible for those details we don't know. The overall thing is you need to be ready. It doesn't matter if it's the rapture or the second coming or the end of the age. The implication here is you need to be ready right now. So first he gave the reminder about the coming of the Son of Man. And really that's uh, verses 35 through 38 that we looked at last week. It's a reminder. I I called it a reminder uh, even though up to this point for probably the first three years of Jesus' ministry, he didn't talk about his second coming very much at all. That was not a point of emphasis. Even his death And resurrection was not a point of emphasis until the last year of his ministry. So in the next six months, the second coming of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man is a major thing. And he's going to elaborate on it as we get at the end of Luke. He's even going to go to very specific details we'll look at then. So we won't do that now. So he's really going to start to emphasize this because his death is near. He's going to die He's going to be crucified. He's going to rise again. He's going to go back to heaven, and then he's going to return again. And he's just reminding the Jewish audience that the Son of Man is going to come back again. The Son of Man is coming. Messiah is coming. Because the Jews, as we talked about last week, when they heard the Son of Man, they thought Messiah. What did they think about that? Uh, That that was a man. Not necessarily a God man, but a man. A great man. Like a prophet, like Deuteronomy says. There's only one place in the entire Old Testament where specifically it talks about the Son of Man in relation to the Messiah. And that was Daniel chapter 7 in 550 B.C. So the Jews, that was familiar to them. Oh, the Son of Man. Oh, you're talking about the Messiah. You're talking about the end of the age. You're talking about the Messiah, uh, the Son of God, or the Son of Man, who is in that vision of Daniel with Almighty God, and Almighty God delegates authority to him, and he will be a great king and an everlasting king, and he will rule over the nations of the earth, and he will delegate some of his authority to his saints. Oh, that son of man, that Messiah. That, that's the minimum that they should have known. And he is coming again. He's coming to the earth. He's coming in power and glory. That's the teaching of Daniel 7. 
So they should have known that. The problem was they didn't know the identity of who that was. Most of them had no idea that Jesus was talking about himself. When he said, the Son of Man is coming in verse 40, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming. Most of them didn't even know that Jesus was calling himself the Son of Man. They had no idea. So on the one hand, oh yeah, yeah, the Son of Man, yeah, he's coming. That's in Daniel chapter 7. We know that. And they didn't connect the dots that Jesus was saying, no, I'm the Son of Man. I'm in your presence. Here I am. I am going to return in glory. They didn't get it. But we know he was talking about his return. Because we saw last week uh, in verse 36, after he told them, be ready, get ready to go. Be dressed, have your lamps on, be like men who are waiting for their master. He didn't say his name was Jesus, but he said the master. Jesus is the master. Be ready for the master. What about the master? Verse 36. Well, when he returns, there it is. It's a parable, but definitely he's talking about himself. I am the master. You are my servants. I am leaving. I will return. I will come again. Then he's trying to connect the dots in verse 40. When I return again, I will return in glory in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 as the glorious, uh, exalted, and resurrected Son of Man in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. They, they are not getting this. The apostles aren't even getting this. This is too much to handle, but he's got to say it anyway. We know that they don't get this because uh, when he says, You too, be ready. Get ready for the Son of Man. He is coming at an hour that you do not expect. John chapter 12, verse 34. Fast forward six months later. One week before Jesus' death, Jesus is talking and teaching, and the crowds... Literally ask Jesus a question. Wait a minute. You keep talking about the Son of Man. Uh, we know that when the Son of Man comes, he'll remain forever. But who is the Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man? That's after three and a half years of teaching. They still don't know who the Son of Man is. The crowd, for the most part. They haven't put it together. There were some people who did put it together. Or the implications. Some people connected the dots and realized, wait, whoa, wait a minute. This guy, Jesus, this rabbi... He is actually claiming to be the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. The gall. How dare he? That is blasphemy. That's Matthew 26. Why did Jesus get arrested and crucified for that claim? Matthew 26. He was on trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. It says they brought witness after witness after witness after witness after witness uh, trying to falsely accuse Jesus and nothing stick. They could not find one. Witness after witness after witness in their kangaroo court could not find one. Finally, they found two rogue individuals that they brought together that actually said the same thing and it didn't conflict so they wouldn't be exposed in the court. And what was their accusation? They said, we heard this man say, that I will destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Wait, did Jesus ever say that? I will destroy the temple of God and I will rebuild it in three days? If you said yes, no. He didn't say that. Go back three and a half years when he began his ministry, the very beginning of his ministry, after the first, around the time of his first miracle at age 30, when he cleansed the temple and he was angry and furious and throwing money all over the place and turning tables over and rebuking the leadership and they questioned him who do you think you are you nobody where'd you come from anyway you're not one of us show us a sign what is your authority by which you do this 
And he told them his authority. My authority is, destroy this, you people out there, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. That's what Jesus said. To quote him accurately, he said that, go ahead, try to destroy, try to destroy the temple, this temple, and if you do, I will raise it up again. And then John says, he wasn't talking about the physical temple, he was talking about the temple of his body. What, did he, what was he saying? Jesus was saying, okay, go ahead and kill me, because he knew they would. Go ahead and kill me. But in three days, I will raise myself from the dead. Three and a half years later, these two false witnesses twisted it turned it on its ear, and they said that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple of God. That is blasphemy. The holy temple of God? Jesus never said that. He said that they would destroy the temple of God. So they twisted Jesus' truth. Two of them agreed. Then the high priest went ballistic, tore his robe, pointed his finger at Jesus' face. What do you have to say? What do you have to say? Jesus basically kept silent, and then the high priest kept pressing him, and then Jesus just said one thing, and you know what he did? He quoted Daniel chapter 7, saying, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in glory, sitting uh, by the Almighty in glory. You will see, I, basically he was saying, uh, I will come as the Son of Man. The high priest knew exactly what he was saying and, said, and basically accused Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus was calling himself the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. And then they arrested him on the spot, crucified him, killed him. So that was the sin. So that's why this is so significant when Jesus brings up this phrase, the Son of Man. So let's go back there. Luke chapter 12, with that background in mind, uh, Jesus is telling all these Jews, let me give you a reminder, the Son of Man is coming, and so you need to be ready. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. And really, uh, verses 35 to 40, if you were just doing, if you divided this section just into two parts, 35 to 40 is one parable pretty much that goes together where Jesus is emphasizing one truth, and that's you need to be watchful. Which means you need to be ready. Ready for what? For the return of the master. He says it three times. Well, who's the master? He tells us in verse 40. The return of the son of man. Well, who's that? Well, hopefully you can put it together. That's Jesus. Be ready, be ready, be ready. For the end of the age, for the coming of Jesus Christ in glory as the Messiah, you need to be ready at all times. Well, when is he coming? When is he coming? And repeatedly in this passage, Jesus says at any moment, at any time, when he returns. At an hour, here it is, in which you do not know. And then at the end of verse 40, it's, well, when is he coming? In an hour that you do not expect. So it's imminent, it is near, it's close. It could happen any time, and it could happen suddenly. It's guaranteed, it's definitely going to happen. It's going to be a literal truth. But one thing we don't know is the exact timing. And we call that Imminence. That is the doctrine of imminence. So after I ask you, how's your doctrine of eschatology, let me ask you, how's your doctrine of imminence doing? It's very important. You know how Christians like to fight and argue over eschatology? Well, oops. Do they? I'm sorry. Over the, and usually what are they fighting over? The timing of events, right? That's what the whole fight is about uh, if you're pre-trip, post-trip. If you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill. What are they fighting about and arguing about? At, at the root of it, it's about the timing of events. That's what it is. And it's silly because there's so much that Jesus didn't reveal about the timing of events. There's a lot we don't know. People just assume, yeah, we know. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Things about the 
end of the age in eschatology that we absolutely don't know according to what, from my study of scripture all these years? Some of which I actually believed at one point and came to realize, you know what, if I'm objective and honest, I just can't find the answer in the Bible. I don't know. Like, number one, when is Jesus returning? I don't know. Well, do you think uh, the coming of Jesus is near, Pastor Cliff? Yeah, it's nearer than it was yesterday. That's all I can tell you. And I'm going to keep saying that as long as you keep asking me. So we don't know the timing of Christ's return. Uh, we don't know if you're a pre-trib guy. So you got the rapture happens. Jesus comes for the church. And then you got a seven-year literal tribulation. And then after that, you got the millennium. And historically, people who have held that view, they, they said, well, you got the rapture and then seven years of tribulation and immediately the millennium begins. Boom, boom, boom. Like, and I'm like, mm, that's, I've come to realize that's not true. We actually don't know when exactly the millennium begins, actually after the rapture even. So the, the rapture happens and we don't even know how much time elapses before the tribulation starts. It's going to happen, but we don't know the timing of it. So there, there are these events uh, of regarding timing that haven't been revealed. So we shouldn't be quibbling about those, and we should concentrate on what we know is true. And one thing that we can take away from this truth on eschatology from Jesus is the Son of Man, his coming is guaranteed. It is true. It is fact. It's going to be universal. It's in the Bible. It will fulfill prophecy. It's going to affect every soul that has ever lived. It can happen at any moment, and you better be ready. You can bank on that. Be ready. So this, this theme of urgency is all throughout this passage. Uh, be ready, verse 35. Be ready, verse 40. And then verse 47, be ready. Get ready. Uh, expect it like it's going to happen at any time. So the emphasis here is on imminence. And when I say imminence, again, it's imminence doesn't mean now. Imminence means near. There's a difference. It could happen at any time. And then uh, imminence. I know imminence sounds like imminence, but those are two different words. Wait, let me say that again. Imminence sounds like imminence, but those are two different words. So don't be confused. There's imminence, imminence, and eminence. Thank you, English language that stole from Latin. But anyway, imminence is I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. You got two I's in there. Imminent. That's what we're talking about, imminency. It could happen now. It is an impending event. There are no prerequisites uh, before it happening. It could happen uh, immediately. It'll happen as a surprise to most people. It'll catch most people probably off guard. That's what Jesus means. Be ready. It can happen at any time. That's imminence, the doctrine of imminence. And that's one of the main things that I believe about the eschatology and the coming of Jesus Christ that is rock solid, is the imminence of Jesus Christ and his near return. If you think about it, uh, the apostle Paul believed in imminence. Oh, well, that's actually all of the apostles believed in the immediate imminent return of Jesus Christ. They, they expected it to happen right away. They didn't have the New Testament all laid out like we do. I mean, think about it. When Jesus rose from the dead, it's about 30 A.D. And he's, he's with his apostles in Acts chapter 1. And they are with Jesus. They just spent 40 days with him. He's risen from the dead. He is glorified. He's about to go back to heaven. They're going to they're gonna found the church. They, they are excited. Jesus is the conqueror. And now all those Old Testament prophecies are going to be fulfilled. Man, we're going to take out the Romans. We're going to take over the world. Yeah. Psalm 2, bring it on. That's what they are thinking. That's why they asked him in Acts chapter 1. Lord Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus didn't say, oh, how stupid of you. Don't be idiots. 
All he said was, well, actually, regarding the timing of the event, it's not for you to know. Those are secret. They belong to the Father. The timing of those events are not for you to know. Just be ready. Just be faithful. Just be prepared. Just be obedient. But that is the first indicator that the apostles themselves had an immediate expectation of Christ's return. That's called imminence. That is carried over with the rest of the apostles uh, in the New Testament epistles. I already quoted 1 Peter where he said the time is near. He's talking to saints and the time is near. That's imminence. The time is near. The time of Christ's return is near. The apostle Paul several times uh, speaks about his imminence. The passage we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which is about the rapture, because that word is used in the passage, the rapture, the coming of Christ. And Paul says three times, talking about the rapture that could come at any time. It is imminent. It's the next thing on God's clock. Christ returning for his saints. Paul is talking in the first person, we. When we, Christians who are alive and remain on earth, when Jesus comes back. What does that mean? Paul had a theology of imminence that Christ could return at any moment. There is, I guarantee, if you interviewed Paul back 2,000 years ago. Hey, Paul, uh, did you know that Jesus isn't going to return for another 2,000 years? Paul would say, no way. Don't believe it. That's too long. Same thing with Peter. Peter says, uh, the coming of Christ is near. The coming of Christ is near. Be ready. It could happen at any time. Oh, Peter, by the way, uh, the coming of Jesus, that ain't happening for another 2,022 years. Do you know that? Peter said, no, no, no. Can't be. Can't be. Impossible. So that's their frame of mind. James, the book of James, chapter 5, same thing. The time is near. The time is at hand. First John chapter 2. The time is near. We're at the end of the age. We know we're at the end of the age. The time is near. The beautiful prayer that Paul prays in 1 Corinthians 16, where in the New American Standard it just says, Maranatha, Maranatha. It's an Aramaic Chaldean phrase. What does it mean? Come, Lord. Come, Lord. It's almost a command. It's a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And as a matter of fact, four English Bibles translate it that way. Come, Lord! Exclamation point. That's imminence. Paul is praying, Lord Jesus, return immediately. So imminence is taught all throughout the Bible. And God in his wisdom uh, gave us the doctrine of imminence because God knew we we are not supposed to be preoccupied with the exact day and the hour because we don't know that, but we should always be ready. And we have that in human circumstances. You're going to roll out the carpet for the dignitary coming to town and you're responsible for setting up the gig and the party and rolling out the red carpet for him? What's the first thing you want to know? I'm getting paid for this. I'm accountable. I could be taken out to the, the woodshed if I don't get it right and I mess it up. The first thing you want to know is, well, when is he coming? Well, he's coming next month sometime. Well, that's not good enough. When is he coming? What day? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Just be ready. That's motivation enough, isn't it? Be ready. Jesus is returning. Be ready. That's his point of emphasis here. So he tells that parable, 35 to 40. Now let's transition on uh, to verse 41. And let's look at Peter's response. So imagine there's Peter. He's close by. So the apostles, the 12 apostles, they got a kind of a front row seat. They're around Jesus as everybody's crushing each other and stepping on each other with these tens of thousands of people. Jesus tells this parable where he emphasizes one thing. You need to be ready, ready to go at any moment. At any moment. You don't know the timing. Just be ready. If you are ready, verse 37, you will be blessed. There's no bad news in that parable, 35 to 40. 
Contrary to the parable he's about to give him 42 to 48. There's no bad news in verse 35 to 40. It's all good news. Just be ready. And if you are, verse 37, you will be blessed. Isn't that enough when it's coming from the Lord Jesus? Just be ready and you'll be blessed. Well, that's not good enough for Peter. And I understand that there's a lot of uh, vagary here and ambiguity. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. Are you doing Q&A? Because I got a question. I mean, I cannot, that resonates with me. I'm like Peter. I need more information. So Peter asks a question. He always asks the question that other people wanted to ask or are too scared to ask. And this is one of them. So Jesus tells his parable, you need to be ready. The master's returning. The master's returning. By the way, the master is the son of man and he is coming. When is he coming? Well, at an hour you don't expect. But the important thing is, if you're ready for him, you will be blessed. And then Peter says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Okay, there's, there's me and my 11 buddies, the apostles, and then these thousands and thousands of people. Wait, I know that scribe over there. He doesn't like me. He hates Jesus, and he's here too. He just heard this promise of being blessed. Wait a minute. This isn't fair. Jesus, is this parable for everybody? Is everybody going to be blessed? That's what he's asking. Uh, Verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable that you just told to us? I think by that he means the apostles. Is it just to us? Or to everyone here? All these compromisers. And Jesus in his wisdom, as always, he almost never answers the question the way you would expect. And that's exactly what he doesn't do in verse 42 and following. He does not answer the question. He actually doesn't even answer Peter's question. Uh, Because if he took it at face value, Peter said, okay, Jesus, are you addressing this parable to everybody? Is everybody going to be blessed when the Son of Man returns? Or are you just talking to us? And Jesus couldn't say, well, no, I'm just talking to the 12 apostles. Now, why, Jesus, why could Jesus not say that? Because of Judas. Judas was not going to be blessed. Judas was going to be a betrayer. Judas would not be blessed at the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus could not have said that. It, just a yes and no. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, just you guys. Just the 12 apostles. Applies to you only. But he also, Jesus wants to open it up as an invitation to everybody there in the audience. There's, he, his, he was a savior. He loved people. He came to die for sinners. He called them to repentance. He wept when people walked away from him when he made an appeal. That's the heart of Christ, the, the true shepherd, the, the lover of people. So he wants to turn this into an invitation to people. Be ready, be expectant, and he wants to open it up. And Man, Peter, broaden your view of the love of God, will you? So what's the answer to Peter's question? Uh, Jesus, are you addressing this parable that people can be blessed by the coming of the Son of Man just to the apostles? Or is it for everybody? And he doesn't say, well, it's just the apostles. And Jesus also doesn't say, well, it's for everybody. He's, in his wisdom, he's very specific and yet a little general. And basically what he says, uh, 42 to 48, it's anybody who's faithful. That's who it applies to. Anybody that listens to me. Anybody that follows me. Anybody that embraces me as the son of man, they will be blessed. That's who it applies to. Then he brings in the bad news, and it is really bad news at the end of uh, 47, 48. Those who are not faithful, there are going to be severe, damning consequences for them because of their rejection. And he gives us the details of it. So let's just walk through that passage now that you've got an overview of what's going on here. 
uh, 41, Peter asking Jesus, who's the parable for? Is it for the apostles or for everybody else, the entire crowd? Is it universal salvation? 42, the Lord said to Peter, and really the rest of the crowd, well, who then is faithful and a sensible steward? There it is. There's your answer. Who is this promise of blessing to? Well, it's whoever's faithful and a sensible steward. What's a steward? A steward is somebody who is accountable to somebody else and takes care of the stuff of other people. And the stuff that we need to take care of that we're accountable for is the truth of God that's been given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you, are a, if you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are now a steward whether you wanted to be or not. You have been given divine supernatural information that you are accountable for. And you'll stand before God the creator as judge one day. As a steward. How did you do? How did you respond? Did you respond in faith? Did you bow the knee to Jesus? Did you humble yourself? Did you embrace Christ? There's only two categories. You either did or you didn't. You're either a faithful servant or you're not. You embrace the stewardship responsibility of the truth in Jesus Christ or you rejected it wholesale. Those are the only two options and Jesus elaborates on those two options. Peter, let me ask you a question. Who then is the faithful? Jesus does that all the time. You ask him a question, he'll ask you a question. (laughs) Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Verse 43, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he returns. Jesus, of course, the master. If you're faithful to me and what I say, you'll be blessed. Peter, just concentrate on being faithful. Peter, concentrate on yourself and your responsibility. Peter, quit worrying about everybody else. Don't worry about John and what's going to happen to him. So there's the truth. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing. That's the reward. That's point number three, the reward. What's the reward of people who are faithful and embrace the gospel of Christ and are good stewards and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, confess their sins, believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on their behalf, and they are born again and they remain faithful, child of God, they will be blessed. They'll be blessed at the coming of Christ. They'll be blessed when Jesus comes again, whenever that happens. And it is near. It could happen at any time. As a matter of fact, it could, it could come as a thief in the night. That means unexpectedly, when you least expect it, be ready. Verse 44, Jesus said, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. So when Jesus does come and he finds people who are faithful, he's going to entrust to them greater stewardship responsibilities. And he'll elaborate on this more at the end of the Gospel of Luke. We need to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us now, our spiritual gifts, and be obedient and Maybe you're a 60-watt light bulb, then shine like a 60-watt light bulb to the hilt. If you're a 95-watt light bulb, then shine 95. If you're a 65-watt light bulb, you don't need to be 85. Just be faithful in what has been entrusted to you as a faithful steward, and God is pleased by that, and he'll bless you as a result. And when he comes, he will entrust you to greater things. That's the beautiful thing. But, verse 45... But bad news, transition, contrast, but in contrast to the faithful steward, the faithful slave, the one who heeded the call to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man, that could happen at any time. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves 
both men and women, and to eat and to drink and get drunk. What's that? That's just focusing on this life. That's disregarding spiritual realities. And there are people like that. They're religious people like that. They don't have a view to heaven according to the Bible. It's all right now. That was true of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. These are people who've even heard truth, probably. Verse 46, the master of that slave, he will come, and he will return on a day when... That person does not expect it. That's imminency at any time. And at an hour that he does not know. And listen to this. And he will cut him into pieces. That is gory. Slaughter. That's Revelation 19. Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth and slaughters his enemies. Blood splattering all over on his robes. He'll cut the unfaithful, disobedient ones into pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. That's hell. It's real. Verse 47, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready, so you're accountable for the knowledge that you have, you're accountable for the spiritual truth that you have. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready, who's that? Who has more spiritual truth of divine revelation than they need and yet completely rejected. It's the people he addressed when he began this conversation in chapter 12, verse 1. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They had the whole Testament memorized. They know everything. They've got so much knowledge, it's dangerous for their soul, actually. The more you know and the more you reject, the more accountable and fearful it is. Sobering. Going back to 47, uh, the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. What's that? Punishment. That's torture. He's describing hell, I believe. Punishment. There's going to be accountability. There's going to be uh, unbelievers going to be assigned away from believers. There's going to be physical uh, punishment. And he, his illustration here is it comes out in lashes. Verse 48, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging or a lashing will receive a few lashes from everyone who has been given much. Much will be required, and primarily that has to do with truth and divine revelation and Bible teaching you've heard. From everyone who has been given much truth from God, and for us it's the Bible, much will be required. Some have said we are saved by grace through faith, but we are judged by our works. And there's an element to that that's true because the judging of our works regarding our faithfulness comes out in rewards that we get in heaven. But if you're an unbeliever, you're judged by your works. Primarily the greatest work is you've rejected Jesus Christ and you're assigned to hell. And there are degrees of hell. There's degrees of punishment. Other gospel accounts talk of that as well. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So this is sobering. But don't forget the big picture. What is Jesus saying? You need to have a, a, a biblical, scriptural worldview. Don't let false religious teachers steal that from you. In this case, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. You need to think according to God's word. You need to embrace the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that he mentioned in the passage. Fear God. Don't fear man. Bow the knee to Christ. Bow to knee, the knee to the Father. Lay everything into his care. He cares for you. Lay everything in his lap. He cares for you. Don't worry about anything. 
don't worry about your needs today. Don't worry about tomorrow. The Father knows everything you need. He's, he's actually entrusted the entire kingdom to you. You're going to inherit that. That's also Daniel chapter 7. Rest in him. Therefore, that's why he kept saying, don't worry. Be at ease. Doesn't matter what trials come into your life. If you're a child of the king, rest in him. Be patient. Be patient and at the same time, be ready. Are you ready, saints? Are you ready for a horrific thing like murder? Are you ready with the idea that through the circumstances of life and God's permissive will, you could lose your life today? And then there's the good news. Are you, are you ready for a Christian that Jesus could return at any time? That's what we need to be ready for. Let me close with this. Uh, well, what can we say about the imminent return of Jesus Christ since we can't say anything about the timing? And that's what we like to argue and theologize and fight about. At least that's what seminary students like to fight about. Anyway, uh, I'm a seminary teacher. Well, here are things I think just distilled from the Bible. I, here's 12 things. I'm just going to read them off. Things that you can count on regarding the return of Jesus Christ. Guaranteed. This is our eschatology. This is biblical Christian eschatology. There is no other religion or ideology or philosophy on planet Earth that has this and has it so specifically. They make stuff up about the end of the age in the future. It keeps changing. 50 years from now, if we're still around, people aren't going to be talking about global warming and climate change. You know why? Because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Just read Genesis 8.22. It's going to keep changing. The wisdom of man. It's fallen. But this is from the Bible. You can count on it. Jesus is coming again. Twelve truths. His return is future. It's literal. It's physical. Visible. Glorious. Universal. Unexpected. In other words, many people are just going to be caught unaware. Closely related to the next one, number eight, imminent. It can happen at any time. Number nine, certain. As a Christian, you should have confidence in this. This is an anchor for your soul amidst the uncertainty of life. Ten, judgment. Eleven, motivating. The return of Jesus Christ is motivating. For us to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's motivating for evangelism. It's motivating for worship. And then finally, number 12, it's final. It is the final act in human history. It's the consummation and apex of human history, fulfilling God the Father's all-glorious plan. It's all pointing to and all about the glorious consummation of the return of Jesus Christ in glory as Savior and king of the world. Coupled with that, don't do the following regarding the coming of Christ. Don't ignore it. Don't minimize or marginalize it. Don't argue about it, meaning the timing. Don't allegorize it. A lot of that going on today. Oh, yeah, Revelation 19 and 20 is not literal. It's a parable. No, it's not. Don't allegorize it. And then the flip side of that is don't sensationalize it. Getting all hyper about it and looking to the newspaper every single day. Oh, it's happening. Here's the Antichrist. He's over in North Korea. No, he's not. You don't know that. That's what I mean. Don't sensationalize it. You don't know. 
Read church history, 2,000 years of church history, you got all kinds of saints doing that. Martin Luther did that. Oh, the Pope, he's the Antichrist. And John Calvin, oh, the Pope, he's the Antichrist. And then a bunch of Christians in the early 80s. Uh, oh, Gorbachev, he, he's the Antichrist. He's even got the mark of the beast on his forehead. I'm not kidding. It's all over the place. Or just pick whatever politician you hate. He's, he's the Antichrist. She's the Antichrist. It's been true of Christians all throughout history. Don't do that. And then finally, uh, well, how do, how do we obey this? How do we be ready? Well, I'll just give you some practical suggestions. Um, continue to read scripture for more details about the coming of Christ, because God gave us a lot of information. The Old Testament prophets, Zechariah, and then just all those books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah, the book of Revelation, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. That's all eschatology, the end of the age, Leviticus 26, the book of Deuteronomy. Have I given you enough yet to read? That's a lot of stuff. It's ongoing. It's a lifelong pursuit. And it's encouraging. It'll feed your soul. It'll help you grow in faith. It'll grow your confidence so you're not, you don't have fear of the future. That's not uh, God's desire for a Christian. We live in confidence of the future. We welcome the coming of Jesus Christ and the culmination of world history. So study the Word of God. Be in the Word of God continually so that your thinking is straight and not twisted because of the world. Pray for the coming of Jesus Christ. Maranatha. Deliberately and specifically, Lord Jesus, come, return, fulfill your scripture, bring justice to this world. That's all over the Psalms and the Bible. Daniel 9, it's everywhere. Uh, and then use the coming of Christ, as I alluded earlier, as motivation for your prayer life, uh, but also for evangelism. Right? Because the time is short. And we have beloved uh, family and friends and colleagues that they don't know Jesus yet. We don't want to see them perish. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, said Paul. So use it as motivation. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for his promises. He is coming again. Father, we thank you for our time together, the opportunity and privilege to study Scripture, the living Word of God, the reminder that this is how you speak to us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your son, into the world as the God-man, the eternal one, to, to die in the place of sinners. And that he did that literally, historically. Thank you that he rose again from the dead. He raised himself from the dead just as he said he would. Rose again, ascended back into heaven, reigns as the king of kings right now, is in control of all things, as the sovereign one. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts to confirm that truth and have a real personal and subjective communication, confirmation in our hearts that that is the greatest reality of all. So thank you for making us children of God by belief in the gospel. Thank you for these wonderful reminders that Jesus is coming again that our life is short. It's a vapor. It belongs to you. Help us to be faithful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.